Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. On May 24, 2014, more than a dozen indigenous poets, storytellers, musicians, and spoken word artists performed at an event entitled Our Land, Culture, Community. Story, poetry, song, music, rap for liberation. The event was a benefit for the Indigenous Alliance Without Borders, whose mission is to affirm the rights of indigenous peoples, their rights to self-determination, their collective human and civil rights, the rights of sovereignty, and the protection of sacred sites, and the free, unrestricted movement across international borders. Today's 30 Minutes continues with part six of a multi-part series featuring host and organizer Simon J. Ortiz, an indigenous poet and writer of Acoma Pueblo heritage who specializes in indigenous literature. He is a Regents Professor of English at Arizona State University and convened many of the artists and introduced the speakers. First up on 30 Minutes, we'll hear from Kenneth Dyer Redner, of Shoshone Paiute Heritage. I want to tell you a little bit about the next uh, uh, writer and presenter, and it's, uh, I call him Kenny. His name is Kenneth Dyer Redner, uh, but it's okay for me to call him Kenny, right? <laughs> well, Ken and his family are, uh, you know, here tonight, uh, and uh, uh, they include his wife and uh, his daughter and uh, the little one who's growing up to going to be a big guy and uh, as big as his dad. You know, his dad uh, used to be a uh, boxing uh, collegiate level uh, and he was very good. He also has a degree from University of Nevada, uh, Reno, in creative writing. And uh, he came here and uh, he... Um, came to, not just to meet me, but also because uh, his wife was uh, uh, doing a, her PhD, and Kenny is just uh, going to start a master's program through the American Indian Studies uh, beginning this fall. And eventually, he's, going, he's looking uh, toward uh, uh, seeking a uh, PhD as well. So I uh, want us to hear and listen to... Uh, uh, Ken, Kenneth, uh, because he's a, I think, a very, very uh, good fiction, fiction writer. So I hope that, uh, what he has to offer, you know, will, uh, benefit him and benefit you. So please welcome Kenneth Redner, uh, Dyer Redner. Thanks, Simon. Um, thanks for putting this together and for having me here. Um, as Simon said, uh, I normally read fiction, um, but I've been trying to work on some nonfiction stuff, and so I have a nonfiction piece that I'm going to read today. Um, and also, as Simon mentioned, that I used to box when I was in college, and uh, <clears throat> this uh, talks about a lot of boxing. So, um, and I'm hoping it'll it'll uh, expand into a much larger piece. Um, so I'll, it's not titled. Uh, couldn't come up with the title. So I'm just going to go for it. Can you guys hear me okay? <clears throat> Christmas Eve, 2008. Me, my wife, my daughter, my mother, my aunt, my brother, 
and his girlfriend, all trying to forget that my grandma is dying in the bedroom. We did this by making gingerbread houses. It was all quite odd, very odd, but we went along with it. My mom and aunt felt guilty that my grandpa had died in the hospital, so when the time came, they decided it would be better if they brought grandma home to the Fallon Paiute Shoshone Indian Reservation. My grandmother's health had visibly declined over the past year, but she'd been waiting to die ever since my grandpa passed away. After my grandpa passed away, my grandma told my mom that she wanted to go to Reno to look for the clothes that she wanted to be buried in. My mom said, Mom, in that disappointing, pleading, sad way. But she drove my grandma to Reno, and they did their shopping, and my grandma picked out a pink outfit. I know this story because my mom told me when we were at the wake, looking at the pink outfit. Normally, after Christmas, I would have dove right into training, but after my grandma passed away, I sort of lingered, telling myself that I had time. I knew how to maximize my training, and I knew that it would only take a few weeks to get in good enough shape to fight. My body knew what to do, but my mind didn't know how to deal with the loss of my grandma. Our first fights of the boxing season were at the end of January. The weeks went by, and I went through the motions in the gym. I still hadn't done any road work. Oh, side note, road work is running if you guys aren't familiar with boxing terminology. I still hadn't done any road work. I played in an all-Indian basketball tournament the weekend before my fight where someone hit me with an elbow and opened a small cut on my eyebrow. Whenever I thought about the upcoming fight, I felt scared. Not scared in that let's do this excited way, but actually scared. I had been scared in my other fights, but also confident and sure that I would get through unscathed. This time I was only looking to survive. I was set to fight this tall, lean kid from the Air Force Academy. It would be a rematch from the previous year where I won a unanimous decision. I had fought well that time, used my jab, boxed when I needed to box, and brawled when I needed to brawl. I knew that he had a good right hand. I knew what I needed to do to win the fight, but I was worried because I hadn't done the conditioning to give myself the confidence that I needed. I watched my grandmother take her last breath. She gasped short, quick bursts, and then expired. My aunt looked at her, saying, Mom? Mom? Perhaps waiting for a response, and when I placed my hand on my aunt's shoulder, she turned her face to me and wept like a child. We all knew she was going to pass soon, but moments like that are always hard no matter how much you prepare. The day before the fight, I told one of my coaches about my anxieties. He looked shocked. He said, I had no idea. While you're in good enough shape to get through this fight, you've been sparring and stuff. I mean, you've been in the gym. Yeah, I said. You get through this fight, and then we'll get back on track. He patted me on the shoulder. Why would he doubt that I couldn't get through the upcoming fight? In the past, I'd fought with the fever, bruised ribs, but something was different this time, and I knew it. When I first started boxing, I was worried that my grandma wouldn't like it. But after my first fight, I asked my mom how she was, and my mom said, Shoot, she was better than me. She was yelling around real loud. I laughed at the thought. My grandma was a woman of small stature. She told people she was five foot, but in reality, she was just shy of that mark. The day of the fight is a bit of a blur. I don't remember if I had class that day or not. I remember feeling tired. I was with my wife for most of the day. Around three, she went to work and I took a nap. Taking a nap on fight day was nothing new for me. 
It was like meditation. I woke, took a shower, ate a little something, and went to the casino where the fight was to take place. I still felt tired. I got my hands wrapped and sat in the back listening to music and trying to relax. The other fights went by slowly. Every so often, I walked out and watched a bit of, bit of them. When it was time, I began to loosen up, did a bit of skipping rope and shadow boxed. Once I had the fight gloves on, I walked down, tried to calm myself. Instinctively, I began my mantra. No one is better than you. No one is better than you. This is something I did since a young age. But since then, I had incorporated two other sayings. The first one from the movie, The Last Samurai. In that scene, Tom Cruise is training with his captors, the Japanese samurai. He is getting beat when one of the samurai comes up and says, Too many mind. Mind of opponent. Mind of people watching. No mind. And then, of course, being Tom Cruise, he gets into a Zen moment and then makes a breakthrough in his training. So I incorporated the samurai's advice. No mind. No mind. The other thing I did, I told myself, well, the other thing I told myself, I found in Bruce Lee's book, Tao of Cheat Kune Do. Bruce Lee said, tell yourself, he will not touch me and I will bruise his flesh. He will bruise my flesh and I will break his bones. He will break my bones and I will take his life. I was back there, walking in the hallway, trying to convince myself that everything was okay. My coach put on the mitts and ran me through some combinations. He was excited. Yeah, he said, catch the jab. One, two, one, come on. You ready? I nodded. As he walked away, I heard him say to one of the other coaches, he looks good, hitting hard. There's that moment when you're walking to the ring, the crowd is cheering or booing, and you are part of the noise, part of the mob. But when you ascend the steps to the ring, you begin to separate from the noise. You separate from the mass and suddenly a silence begins to take hold. As you step through the ropes and plant your feet on the canvas, you have distanced yourself from the spectators. You have entered into an area where, is, where it is only you and suddenly you are face to face with your opponent. The fight for me was never about fighting the opponent. The fight was always about challenging myself, about overcoming fear and self-doubt. It was about discipline and dedication. It was about training before the fight even began. It was about staying up late to do my homework, getting ready for bed, lying down, and then getting back out of bed, putting on my running shoes, and doing my road work. It was about getting back what I'd lost when I was four years old. It was about fighting, pushing beyond limits. When the fight began, I still felt sluggish, but I did what I could. Like I said, the day is a blur. I remember drawing my opponent in so I could throw an overhand right-left hook combination. I remember jabbing in the stomach, jabbing the head, and throwing a jab, right jab. I remember taking a good shot in the first round that stunned me for a millisecond. I don't remember this, but they said his nose was bleeding badly. In the second round, I was fighting, and then suddenly I was falling, and I knew that I had been hit and knocked down, tasted the canvas for the first time. I sat on my ass, looked at my coach in the corner, and threw up my hands like, at the count of eight, I stood up. The ref told me to walk towards him. I did, but my foot dragged. I was still woozy. The ref waved off the fight. We went through the particulars of announcing the winner and raising his arm for the crowd. As I shook hands with my opponent, he held his nose and said, disappointed, You broke my nose, man. I just shook my head. I felt like saying, Well, you won the fight. But I didn't say anything. As I exited the ring and descended the steps, my brother was standing there. 
You all right, man? Yeah, I said. Mom was crying, he said. I walked, I walked to the back and changed my clothes. My wife met up with me, and we went back to my apartment. Later that year, I won the regional championship by knockout in the first round. But at the national championship tournament, I lost a decision. My style had become methodical, and it wasn't enough to be successful at that level of competition. I was just looking for a big punch. I want to say something about mortality, how seeing my grandmother take her last breaths had something to do with my inability to focus on getting through the season, how it made me vulnerable, opened me up for the shot I took, how seeing her life expire somehow it had an effect on my ability in the ring. Maybe I'm looking for some justification or an excuse. Can you blame me? What's the alternative? Accepting defeat? My late trainer, Greg Rice, told me once, winning is easy. When you get knocked on your ass, that's the real test. I just want to say one last thing. More for me than for you. When I got knocked down, I got back up. Thanks. You are listening to remarks made at Our Land Culture Community. Story, poetry, song, music, rap for liberation. The event was a benefit for the Indigenous Alliance Without Borders. On 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Up next, we hear from Henry Oso Quintero of Apache Heritage. All right. Now we have a... a, a writer who uh, actually brought me here to, uh, well, here meaning Arizona, to ASU. Arizona State University had learned that I was coming back to Arizona. And so uh, also our next speaker uh, got wind of that and he became part of the, uh, uh, whatever, recruiting team to bring me to ASU. And so, uh, thanks to Henry uh, Oso Quintero, who is uh, Apache, is going to uh, read and show us uh, his own poetry and uh, uh, story. Thanks, Simon. Uh, I brought my uh, little brother, uh, Philip Case, here uh, from White Mount Apache. Uh, introduce uh, ourselves just briefly like that. Uh, and really want to thank uh, this organization. It does great work, and thanks, Simon, for bringing us here. Especially want to thank the youth for having a voice. It's, it's important as uh, Native people to have a voice. Um, that's why I wanted Simon to be here years ago when, when uh, I was a doctoral student at ASU, because uh, we needed a voice. Um, there's a, a few uh, Apache words in here that, that especially the youth, uh, the, some of the stories I heard. That happened to me, too. I got called into the principal's office for a, a poem that I wrote. So I came back just a, f- a few days ago, and, and uh, I'm, I'm real lucky. I have a job interview. I've been looking for work for since, well, since I, I, I finished the doctorate, um, but maybe not that hard. And uh, the Maricopa Community Colleges uh, said, uh, told one of the border regions, show us a Native American with a Ph.D., and then maybe we can... Uh, do something about uh, Native American retention in our community college system. So come Tuesday, they're going to see one of the ugliest Indians they've ever seen. And fortunately, I still write in the voice of animals, so it keeps me out of trouble. Um, 
This one's called uh, Coyote Speaks to the Regents Concerning Indigenous Epistemologies. <laughs> and in Apache, the, the title is Mba the Claw Eshef Ben Franklin, which basically means I ate Ben Franklin. <laughs> On these hierarchies, we are convinced, therefore, that you mean to do us good by your proposal. And we thank you heartily, but... You who are wise must know that different in the different peoples, different nations, different conceptions of things, and you will therefore not take it amiss if our ideas of this kind of education happen not to be the same with yours. We have had some experience of it. Wah! Several of our young people were formally brought up at the colleges and universities. They were instructed in all your sciences, but when they came back to us, they were bad runners. Ignorant of every means of living with the earth, unable to bear the hardship or the joys of either cold or hunger, knew neither not how to build a cabin nor put up a teepee. They could not take a deer or make peace with an enemy. They spoke our language of love imperfectly, therefore neither fit for hunters, warriors, or counselors. They were totally good for nothing. By your kind offer, Cheon, we decline accepting it and to show our grateful sense of it if the gentlemen of higher education will send us your daughters and sons. We will take great care of their education, instruct them in all we know so they will gallop with the earth beneath them, bearing witness to the joys and hardships of a good life sheltering and feeding families while making peace wherever they walk only speaking in joniati words of love in all their varied pageants we will make human beings of them As I told you, uh, I've been looking for work for about the last five years, but not that hard. Um, I basically uh, live as a... How, how, how many of you know what a second-tier rock and roller is? It's kind of like Alejandro Escobedo or, you know, some of these rock and roll groups that you see. They're not quite Bruce Springsteen. The real story is, when you stop moving, you stop eating. So uh, this is a, a, a love poem that uh, I wrote for uh, one, of, uh, one of my loves on the road. And uh, my little brother's going to help me out. And the colloquial, the colloquial way of explaining this Apache song that he's going to be singing is, uh, we call it the Please Don't Divorce Me song. 
There are thousands of miles between the first time I met you dancing down a lonely road in high grass towards Sebikyan, my house, a weekly teepee, and my sister announces you were with another when I ask, who is that? Growling with the joy of your movement, passing me, feeling the hard calluses of my palms like seashells, riding a fire horse, the spoils of war. I'm okay with that, having so much love that it propels me through life. It's in a repetitive dream of truck stop superstations, Valero Stuckey's loves in a whole other world where movement is constant and people just disappear into a consciousness of want and high fructose TV flickering tubes, mesmerizing children in the racing suburbans glowing in a beta fire inside the back sleepers of trucks carrying cargo of life and tick and tack racing toward boxes lined with satin buried in yards of lawn and covered with stones. I only remember these things strangely in a beauty like giant symphony of mechanical locusts drinking the blood of the earth. I bristle with bang sticks, pistols, arrows, and feathers, rattlesnakes shaking from mouth of cougars growling under my feet, and in the sharpness of the tips of night, stars, this is the darkness that protects bags, kettles filled with hoshize, wishes waiting to come true, consumed around half-moon, filled with a rainbow of maple fire, people wishing for houses, a home, safety for themselves, their children, a car, time, ijoni, love, freedom, and the medicine cast into their mouths, that black seeds that become the deeds of the hands of the people. I listen past the drone of the giant locust, the crack of the fire halfway between the length of your arm and heaven. I am past wishing except for a common comfort and a long life around this die, this a deer settling into a clear drink of a spring surrounded by rows of nantan, maize, the mine sheltered in a fairy ring of apricot trees, tze, fruit, the boughs are heavy with sweetness. I have taken the time to rest this masana before you. This one's called A Badger King Drinks, Dreams, Horses, and Watches TV. One. Badger King starts his job. It is the early morning hours that Badger hates the most, hacking up the spit, the taste of whiskey, and from the night before, not bothering to brush his teeth before his breakfast of worms and wild onions, Badger punches pounds of dirt and cans out his door, grumbling about his neighbor Grackle, who likes the mornings and says, Howee! Welcome, King! Badger only grumbles, mumbles something about eating Grackle's heart out one day, drags his belly along and into his place. Plymouth Fury, Badger King only likes horses sitting in the long grass, settling down to a light lunch of grubs and small mice, not bothering to wipe the ojus from his long chin. He watches the thoroughbred's gait, its shoes turning in the sun like pinwheels. He wishes he had long legs instead of long claws that arch into earth like black moons. Later, Badger King would course through stables, looking for plumeless baby swallows on plates of dry 
dry straw, taking time to notice which horses had been switched to the new nylon harnesses instead of the old leather tack, giving them a naked feeling for only one race. He would pay attention to any swelling in their thin ankles, how much they sweat after a good run. He would ask them their age and about the names of their parents, take notes, scratching stats in the sand with his long hands for the racing form. By then, it was four, and Badger was thirsty, climbing into his fury. He headed for the cavern lounge, where he could get a good drink, one that would burn, then come back up hard, warm, opening his nose, getting him ready for what he liked best, more drink. Two, Badger draws the line. Badger farts, then vomits, leaving more room to drink. The fur on his back hackles with every swallow of grain until Crow calls, Last caw! Last caw! With every scent mast and sweet corn, Badger foists a smile on his face. Every action mast and drunk dream, how the keys feel like beetle shells in his palm, how the wheel runs through his hand like smooth tree roots, how the windshield tunnels through the dark halls of his house. Badger wakes up in the irrigation median going 80. It is here where Badger draws the line along the reflectors, growls to himself and vows he will either quit drinking or quit driving. Badger quits driving. Three, the Badger King no, eats no salad in his salad days. It is the early morning hours that Badger hates the most, the way white-winged dove whistles, whoo, it's going to be hot, whoo, it's going to be hot. Ladderback woodpecker agrees with Dove, pounding hot, 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 into yucca. His words vibrating out, mixing with the first waves of heat, is enough to make Badger growl, is enough to make him sick with heartburn, it is enough to make Badger want to kill. Badger kills Dove and feels better. Badger's heartburn is incessant enough to make him wince and pant while eating grubs enough to make him swallow chalk and the chalk is enough to make him swallow beers whole at lunch all this is enough to make the Badger King choke and swallow clutch his chest and roll his eyes back blind all this is enough to make the hounds howl in nervous rescue it is enough for Fox to lay Badger down cut his, open his chest licking the Badger King's heart free of the thick slick spongy fat then sew him shut with the horsest of hairs from a horse's mane. Four, Badger wakes embittered. It is in a room as white and cold as winter that Badger sighs. He misses the smell of beer and the smell of lingering gas of pickled eggs. Fox tells Badger he is fat, that he drinks too much and cannot lick his heart clean again. The fat is stale and tastes too much like rotten snails. Badger King groans. It is a life not worth living, a life without spirit. He grumbles, moans, eats head nurse Wapiti, even after he finished her sinewy left thigh and devoured her thick marrow guts. King had an empty feeling in his stomach. Five, the Badger King's new vice. Here are these early morning hours. Badger begins to slowly hate the day away. He hates the bland taste of a meatless breakfast, loathing a light lunch of lean fish. Badger longs for drink for whores and horses for a quick fix fantasy. God speaks in cracks of wind. God whispers, Santa Anna. 
As Badger King flips the switch, the RCA 18-inch screens the greens of acres across the tube in a normal hue. Then, as wind hits wire, King experiences marvelous technicolor racing from the screen to his eyes. It was that moment that King discovered television. It was that brief moment King saw the best picture he ever saw. Six, chronicle of Badger King's full circle. Badger rips out IV, grumbles at front desk till Squirrel, out of fear, gives Badger back his loose tweed suit and yellow tie. Badger King calls taxi and heads for Circuit City. In this warehouse, King inspects Sony Spectravision, Xena Super Spectrum Color Watch 5, a Mitsubishi arch color screen with chrome monitor. Cable is not enough for King. The King demands satellite. There is a rhythm in waiting for a perfect picture where Badger King begins to hate in 30-second intervals, hating Morris the cat the most until the picture of the next talk show pulsed into his eyes again. Badger satisfies his hunger with light and healthy TV dinners. He waited longer till his lashes grayed, his teeth loosened. It was hot and well into summer when a flash of lightning brought a tube of brilliance. Badger becoming happily blind in his last breaths, watching Nova. What a gift, this life. What a gift, this earth. Morning is the quietest of times. The horses bay. The king is dead. The king is dead. You've been listening to Remarks Made at an event entitled Our Land, Culture, Community, Story, poetry, song, music, rap for liberation. The event was a benefit for the Indigenous Alliance Without Borders, whose mission is to affirm the rights of Indigenous peoples, the right to self-determination, their collective human and civil rights, the rights of sovereignty, and the protection of sacred sites, and the free, unrestricted movement across international borders. Today's 30 Minutes included host and MC Simon J. Ortiz, an indigenous poet and writer of Acoma Pueblo heritage who specializes in indigenous literature. In the first portion of the program today, we heard from Kenneth Dyer Redner, followed by Henry Oso Quintero. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. This has been part six of a multi-part series. I'm Amanda Shager.